0: We really hope that, uh, that people will take it as a, a beginning point for for the work we hope will be done in the world. We try to lift up stories of, especially women who we think are daughters of RISPA, women who have taken their grief and their loss and sometimes their anger and been willing to literally risk their lives, their reputations, even their families' health and safety. Uh, to to be those daughters of Rizpah, speaking truth to power, witnessing,
1: testifying. Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way editor and President Brian Kaylor. On this program we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at WordandWay.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship has valued theological education as a vital component of vocational ministry preparation for more than 25 years. It puts these words to action by investing in students who are current and future ministry leaders in CBF life. The fellowship awards up to 70 scholarships annually to Baptist students enrolled in the Master of Divinity degree program at an accredited institution of higher education. For more information about all that CBF offers students, visit cbf.net/slash seminary-resources. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation with Sharon and Dan Buttry. Now, they've actually been on the program before a long time ago. They were back in episode 26. In september of 2018 and so if you're not familiar with some of their work i would encourage you to go and check out that episode they talk more about their work as global consultants with american baptist churches usa's international ministries they've since retired from that role but they talk a lot about their work on peace and nonviolence and conflict transformation in that episode but i brought them back on the show because they have a new book that came out and I'm really excited about it, and I think you'll catch that in the episode. I really would encourage you to pick up a copy of this book, Daughters of Rizpah, Nonviolence and the Transformation of Trauma. The book and this conversation are going to talk about the story of Rizpah, a little known biblical character in 2 Samuel 21. And so they're going to talk a little bit about that story and trauma and violence and aggression and hope and transformation. And I hope that you find it helpful in thinking about the Bible as well as the violence in our world today. So here's my conversation with Sharon and Dan Buttry about their book, Daughters of Rizpah. Well, Sharon and Dan, thanks for joining us back on the program.
0: Thank you. We're delighted to be here.
1: It's a blessing. Before we get to talk about your book, which I'm really excited to talk to you all about. First of all, I know that the past about a year has been unusual for us all. And I just wondered, how are you all doing? And have you and your loved ones been staying staying safe and healthy during this unusual time? Well, we live in Detroit, and Detroit got
2: hit pretty bad in the early waves. And uh, we've lost eight friends to COVID, eight people we know. We have some others who uh, survived, didn't even go to the hospital, but had major months-long major uh, fatigue. Our son got it. Uh, uh, he didn't have to go to the hospital, but he was out of work for three weeks. And uh, so we know uh, COVID. We've been blessed not to get it. Uh, and uh, we just got our first. We're, we got our first uh, Moderna vaccine, and we're waiting for the second. Sharon's been involved in a lot of community activities related to COVID, leading that.
0: Yeah, we have a. Uh In Hamtramck where we live, a neighborhood of Detroit, we started a mutual aid group and some time banking so people could give their time and energy. We got a uh, United Way grant to do some translation of COVID information for our immigrant community here. And we started a Facebook COVID response page where we could give updated information. And then our mayor uh, gave daily COVID updates Uh, last spring and early summer. Now she gives it every week. So we've got a lot of coordinated response here in the city. And recently I've been trying to help immigrants uh, access vaccines.
1: Very good. Well, it does definitely seem like one of those moments where you you mentioned you each have your first dose that, you know, hope is... Is on the horizon, and I think we're, you know we're not there yet. But you know we're going to be talking a lot about you know hope and finding hope, and and I think that we're all kind of experiencing that a bit right now, with the vaccinations rolling out, and, and particularly trying to reach those though to immigrants and and other communities that aren't always first in line or allowed to be first in line. And so I think that that's really important to acknowledge that as well. I did want to ask one other question because I know that you all know many people in Myanmar. And that has been a a very serious issue in the news. And I know you know more than you can share. But uh, I wonder if you could share with us a little bit about what's happening in Myanmar. And you have worked with a lot of people who are working for peace there in that country. How can you help us understand the situation?
2: Well, uh, they had a military dictatorship for decades, uh, starting from the 60s. uh, uh, so there was a big uprising in 1988 against the military dictatorship. And that's when Aung San Suu Kyi came uh, into national attention. Uh, her father, Aung San, was kind of like the George Washington for the uh, Burmese, but he was, he was assassinated on the eve of independence. And then she left the country. Long, long story. But she came back in 88 to take care of her sick mother and ended up becoming a major political figure and was put under house arrest. Uh, Ended up receiving the Nobel Peace Prize for her democracy movement uh, activities. Uh, That's since been tarnished as she became uh, uh, kind of the the de facto leader of the country as democracy finally got there uh, sometime in the last few years. Because she ended up uh, even becoming an apologist for the military's uh, genocidal actions against the Rohingya uh, ethnic group, which are. Religiously, mostly Muslim, one of, but uh, so there's 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 kind of a mixed uh, mixed bag with her. But her efforts to bring democracy definitely changed things. and we we were there both before and after she came to power, and uh, I've been there many, many times over the years. Uh, but a real positive feeling in the country in most of the country, still ethnic conflicts going on. Some of them get attention like the Rohingyas, but others like with the Kachins up in the north get very little attention. Uh the Karen's conflict has kind of calmed down some, but there's still major refugee camps uh, uh, in Thailand and refugees that have come to the US. And so with the military taking power again, they I think basically it's it's uh that the military has lost uh, a lot of their economic uh golden eggs, that they were getting a lot of business, uh, especially with China and all kinds of money flowing through the military. And so as this was kind of becoming uh, more democratized, uh, I think that is probably the biggest thing that they feel like they want to get back into power and all the benefits that come with that. And um, and just to see the broad rejection of that uh, in so many sectors of society and um so I'm very, very excited to see what's going on. Also very worried because the military has shown that it really doesn't care what they do in terms of the human cost. Uh, thousands of people, maybe as many as 8,000, were killed in the 88 uprisings. And so we know that the military is willing to pay a big price to keep control. But uh, so far, the breadth of it has been pretty, pretty phenomenal, breadth of the, the resistance. and. Uh, so there's, there's a, a lot of interesting things happening, and the people, the Christians, are also very, very involved in the, in the movement. And uh, I hear some from, from some friends about it, some of them doing some very courageous things,
1: and um, seeing this as a part of their Christian witness. It's interesting that your, your book that I wanted to talk about, Daughters of Rispa, which is just an excellent book. And I really do highly recommend that to our listeners to pick up a copy. It starts actually with a story in Myanmar, which is what came out in October before the more recent military actions there. And so that's kind of interesting that we're having this conversation. And that's where the book begins is you recounting a, a story of one of your trainings there in that country. And so- I, there, there's so much that I want to kind of unpack about this book, and maybe we should start first with. I mean, if people aren't familiar with the story in Second Samuel 21, they might want to pause the podcast, and we'll, we'll wait for them. You know, and they can come back and read it. And they, but I wonder if if you could give us the the really quick, you know, cliff notes version, just so everyone knows where we are on the story. Because I'll be honest, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on this text, and I and I don't think <laughs> I also have to confess I don't think I've ever preached on this text either. So, you know, I'm not just going to blame pastors. I'm going to blame myself here as well. So what is this story that is sitting there in our text often forgotten? Okay, well, the
0: text is 2 Samuel 21, uh, verses 1 to 14 is where we started, and we use the NRSV in our uh, book. So there is some history that would be helpful to know that Saul actually grew up in the area of the Gibeonites. And there was a treaty made uh, between Saul and the Gibeonites. And basically that treaty was broken. And there was a massacre of the Gibeonites. And when famine came on the land at the time of David's reign, God said there's blood guilt on the land, which is very interesting because uh, God is taking up the cause of a people who were treated unjustly, and The people of Israel were bearing the consequence of this through famine. So it it appears that David didn't consult further with the Lord and he (laughs) decided to go consult with the Gibeonites and he worked out a deal with them that all the remaining sons of Saul, which included some grandsons, would be uh, uh, executed.
2: Except Mephibosheth. Except Mephibosheth,
0: Jonathan's Jonathan's son. So it says in the scripture that that David executed these sons of Saul, and they were the children of Rizpah, and Michal, sometimes called Merab. And it says he executed them publicly before the Lord. So in those days, part of a public execution was to leave the bodies out in the open as uh, kind of a way of shaming, uh, and they were left to the dogs and the birds of the air. And so, we don't really hear from Mikal. she's kind of quiet in the story. Or Mirab, and we, but we do hear from Rizpa. She she comes out in public, keeps a vigil, tries to keep the dogs and the and the birds away from the bodies of these young men who've been executed. And uh, it says that she was there from the first days of the harvest until the beginning. Or they were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest and she stayed there until the rains fell which would have probably been four or five months and we we don't have any record of anybody bringing her food or she just seems like a lone actor of course somebody must have helped her uh, stay there that long but eventually in verse 11 David was told uh, what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done. And he went and took the bones of Saul and uh, the bones of his son Jonathan from Jabesh Gilead. They never really had a, a proper burial from David. And he went publicly to to uh, Rizpah and together they gathered the bones of um, Saul and Jonathan and the sons who had been executed. And they buried them uh, in the land of Benjamin. So that's the story, and it says at the end, after that, God heeded supplication for the land. So it's an amazing story of a woman who, who used her grief to bring about a transformative moment with a king, with a very powerful figure.
2: Gosh, that's an awful story. And it is no wonder we don't preach about it. Yeah, yeah, and and we turn the page. I was a Bible major at Wheaton College. I went to Gordon Conwell Seminary. My dad was a preacher. I never, ever, once heard anybody do anything with that story. So you're not alone.
1: Yeah, I know you have taught this story, and we're we're going to walk through it a little bit. And I'll be honest, I, I can't tell you exactly when I first really noticed the story. I was working on some writing, you know, with David, and was dealing with this story and thought, wow, this is a lot to unpack. And it was just a few months after I had spent some time reading and and thinking through the story that I sat in on one of your conflict transformation trainings that you all were holding at Central Baptist Theological Seminary, where they have a peace center now named after you all. Uh, I think this was the first real effort of the center back in August of 2018. And, and it was just a, I mean, I, it felt like a coincidence at first. I'm, I'm not going to necessarily say it was just purely a coincidence, but because of some other commitments, I couldn't actually come for the whole ten days. So I, I had requested a, you know, a chance to come and you know sit in on one day to do a little bit of coverage for Warden Way. I came up before and interviewed both of you, interviewed a couple of people uh, that day on on campus, and sat in on one day of your event. And the day that you suggested would be the best day to come happened to be the day that you all walked through this story and i have I have thought back to that day so many times over the past couple of years, which is one of the reasons I was so excited to pick up your book because it was just one of the most powerful sermons. I mean, it wasn't really a sermon. You acted it out and you had the participants act it out, but a visual, you know, telling of the story and walking through the the text in a way that, it just, it just has really stuck with me. And I know this is something that you have done around the world, is, is helping participants walk through this story. So uh, maybe we can start there, of because that is how you start the book, talking about one of these sessions. What is it that you've been trying to help people find in this story, particularly as you're thinking about helping people build peace, deal with conflict, conflict transformation? What is it about this this text particularly that you, that has keeps coming back up for you?
2: Well, I, I started using it. Um, we actually heard it at a Bible study at the Baptist Peace Fellowship summer conference many years ago, when Cindy Weber, who did the quilted artwork that's on our cover, she's a pastor in Louisville, and um, she she did the first Bible study we'd ever heard on on this, and and she kind of focused on it on Risp's action is a nonviolent action, a nonviolent protest. And so so I used to use that as a nonviolent example of nonviolence in the Bible. But then Sharon and I attended a uh, program on trauma run by Eastern Mennonite University, the STAR program. And all of a sudden we saw three, all the the three examples of responses to trauma in this one story. And it was like, oh, my God. Goodness, it's all there. And so that's how we started to unpack it in a different way.
0: Well, the reality is there's a lot of trauma in the yeah. world. And this story is obviously very traumatic. Uh, for the victims, for the for the the mothers, and and even for David, I think exploring David's trauma in his life, uh, being on the hunt by by Saul, uh, and, you know, having to pretend that he was crazy and foaming at the mouth at times to, to avoid his own death, untimely death. So there's a lot of trauma in the story. And I think that's what really hooks and connects with people. I know it does with me personally. Just And there's a lot going on right now about trauma-informed practice, about evaluating trauma in social work, in schools, in in various communities, and certainly in places where there's civil war violence, persecution of the church, um, gender violence, uh, different kinds of identity violence. So I think that this story, what we hope to do is to help people know, help people see trauma as a way through to uh, a place of healing. And, And by fully exposing it, engaging it, and looking at what happens in groups that are traumatized, and then how to move toward reconciliation, that whole rehumanization piece. I think it speaks to the political trauma that we've experienced in our in our country, even um, in the u s. So there's a lot here to to connect with where people really find life to be most most challenging.
1: Yeah, and I know we're not going to have time to walk through in depth all these, and that's why people should pick up the book. But I wonder if you could just give us a quick little snippet. And you mentioned you know learning about some of the trauma cycles, and you have charts that are helpful in the book for people. And I had these in my notes from when I was at your training session a couple of years ago. And so I recognized a lot a lot of the charts. And uh, and also, you know, I, I used to live about a mile from Eastern Mennonite. When I, when I taught at James Madison University there, also in Harrisonburg. And so I always enjoyed biking or riding over to campus to hear many of the really impressive speakers that they would bring on, onto that campus. And that was always a real special treat there as well. But what if you talk is just kind of quickly give us a little introduction to, you know, the victim, survivor, aggressor, offender, some of these cycles that you highlight in the book that are in the story and that help people understand trauma and these cycles of trauma, uh, Sharon has noted, that we continue to see in the world today.
0: Sure, uh, we are really uh, beholden to Olga Obacharova for this schematic or model that we use and, and we have her permission to share it. So the victim survivor cycle can be a cycle that just continues around in a, in a circle, beginning with an act of aggression and then, um, the things that a victim feels when there's an act of an aggression. And uh, this, could, this can apply to uh, an individual or a community or a society. So there, they're, um, but in an individual especially, there's feelings of shock, denial, hurt, shame, fear, a uh, loss, um, sometimes anger. And what can happen at that point is those things will get suppressed and they'll kind of get locked inside the body. And then people will tend to, um, as Resma Menachem speaks about, blow that trauma through other people or other situations. And so um, there can be some feelings of helplessness and then maybe even fantasies of revenge. And at that point, if there's a desire for vindication or revenge, then the cycle just gets repeated. And so um, that's kind of what uh, we see happen in the story, where you know we see Rizpa feeling all these feelings, and um, and then the aggressor offender cycle for that we look at the at the um, at the Gibbonites. You know they they the treaty was broken and they experienced a massacre and an act of aggression was committed against them and they go through all the things a victim feels but then they um they start telling the story from their perspective and you know who are these horrible evil people who did this to us so there's a good evil narrative that gets generated and sometimes dehumanizing of the people who have harmed them And at that point, it's easier for social and cultural pressures to just push on a further act of aggression. So that creates new victims. So then you get the victim survivor cycle going again. And we see this in the world all the time where one group one-ups the violence to get back, to get this revenge going. So I'll let Dan uh, pick it up there and talk about how do you break free from that. That's the really exciting page. Yeah,
2: so, so we saw those first that first cycle in Marab and she just disappears from the story. We don't hear her again. And so many victims are like that. But the Gibeonites mm-hmm. who had been victims of genocide, they end up killing these these sons. But Rispa, so she's part of all that, as Sharon mentioned. She experiences all that sense of loss and so on. But she begins to deal with what's happened in a in a powerful profound public way of expressing her grief and then beginning to to act out in a nonviolent public way uh to say look what happened and and um forcing people to 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 see where this violence had led and there's there's some some holes in the story you know, when we look at the whole cycle that's uh, talked about in the book, you don't see necessarily all of it there, but but there's the 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 persistence. It's like I think she was probably driven by anger at what happened, but her anger doesn't tr- lash out at others. Her her anger becomes a, a positive energy to to show the injustice that had happened, and and uh, but it doesn't claim new victims and and her persistence ends up causing David to see see her and and i think you know as sharon mentioned david's own trauma uh, kind of gets gets awakened because david had been acting out in all kinds of negative ways and including the killing of these these descendants of Saul and and uh, so there's this engagement between david and rispa the moment when they meet when sharon and i acted it out she acts as rispa and because of her own dealing with trauma, it is a profoundly difficult thing for her. She has to, she has to get away, get centered. And then afterwards, she takes, has to take a little bit of time to reorient herself. She's so intense in it. And when I, as David, encounter her, it's one of the most profound things. And even, even as many times as we've done it, I'm almost always in tears because I feel like I'm in the moment. And I'm, David, what was that like for the killer to meet the mother of the children he'd killed? And, and, but David, as Sharon told the story, remember David got the body, the bones of Saul and Jonathan and all those who'd been killed in the battle at Mount Gilboa. And and that was, in a way, his, his act of restitution. Uh, restitution is something that we don't deal with very well. In our society, we we want to say I'm sorry, and it's usually a cheap sorry. I'm sorry if what I said offended you, which is not an apology that I said something. It's an apology. I'm apologizing that you got offended by it, and and it, it's really cheap. But here, David, David can't bring back the dead, but what he can do is restore honor to the family. The bones of Saul and Jonathan and the other sons of Saul who've been killed in that battle never got buried properly. They were kept by the loving village of Jabesh Gilead and so so David is is in a way doing an act of restitution, restoring honor to the family name and um, you know that's one of the big issues for us in our country you know how do we deal with the horrors of slavery with the horrors of what was done to indigenous people here? Uh, we did a little bit of that with the Japanese-Americans who were interned during World War II, but that took decades and a very small amount, I think it was 20 dollars some 1000 dollars that was given to each uh, person who had been interned or their descendants uh, for all the losses and everything that they suffered and an apology. So far, we haven't done that at all uh, to the African-Americans. Uh, uh, we've done almost nothing to indigenous people and so th- this whole idea of restitution we see it in this story as a key part uh, how to make things right things went wrong what does it take to make things right there's a whole discipline called restorative justice that is all about how to make things right and so that's one of the big concerns that we see in this story that and and, and it's done publicly david didn't david did this out in public, just as the execute, he went to the killing ground to meet with Rizpah. And out of that, they end up writing a new history that's very complex. And we have it in the Bible. We got this Bible story, which is so complex, you know. And then reconciliation, which we see that later after Solomon's death, that uh, there was civil war again in Israel. And only one tribe stayed with the tribe of Judah. David's tribe. And that was Benjamin, Saul's tribe. And so there's no story of how reconciliation happened between Judah and Benjamin, except this terrible story. And um, so we we see the reconciliation with David and Rizpah and the families, uh, but we see it later in how long lasting the impact was.
1: Yeah, I mean, as as I hope people are hearing, there's just so much in this story to unpack. And you've given several of these little snippets of, you know, this the story of, of Judah and Benjamin, this David, who when he finally is touched, doesn't go straight to her, but as you were talking about, goes and does restitution first, get to get the bones for the proper burial. Or there's so much, so much to unpack. You've got this figure who, and you talk quite a bit about this in the book, who's on the margins. And it's not just that she's not taking her pain and her anger out to hurt others, but she's also she's also in many ways violating the king's edict. She's yes. preventing the judgment. That's one of the things you write about that I thought was really fascinating. That by keeping the the animals away from the body, she's preventing the king's judgment from from coming into play. There's so much in the story to unpack. And, and one of the things early in the book you talk about is I think you know, a lot of times we skip through this story, or if we do read it, we don't read it very carefully because of our pro-David glasses is the, the metaphor that you use. And I think that that's really important to help unpack.
2: Yeah, when we do this uh, stories, we have people work on it in small groups. And, and I'd say about 25% of the time, people will say, David's got to be right. I mean... He's David for crying out loud, you know, and, and, uh, and you say, well, is that the testimony of the Bible about David? No, he did some pretty awful things. But what was important about David is that he always, once he was made aware of his sin, he repented. And I think this is a parallel story to the David and Bathsheba and, and uh, Uriah and the counting of the people.
1: Yeah, I like that idea. We talk about we always talk about those two big sins of David, and and you argue that this this one could be the third because you know he does the sacrifice of the seven sons or grandsons, and the famine doesn't end at that moment. Which uh, earlier you made the comment Dan about how. You know, he doesn't necessarily go back to listen to God again about what he's supposed to do, which and that seems to be the, the sign to us if we're reading carefully that the sacrifice was not what God was wanting because the famine doesn't end at that moment. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I, this is when I remember when you all did the, the dramatization of this. You talk about you know, move being moved to tears. I mean, you almost—I I was sitting there as a journalist, taking photos, and I—you—you almost—I mean—you almost had me physically crying <laughs> at the end, Dan. When you made the 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 declaration, they come together, they bury the bones, and the, you have this pause, and then you look up and you say, "And then, God heard their prayers, and the famine ended, and and it's." It's a way of story. I had I had never read the story to realize the moment when God actually listens. And it's only when after all of this hard work has been done by both Rispa and David, that that we finally are moving forward. There's just, there's so much to unpack in the story. And I just, I really, I really appreciate the fact that you all have written this together because I, I have told this story to a lot of people in the last like, two <laughs> years. And so, you know, I just, this is really important work that you all have been doing and that you're providing with this text for us in this book.
0: Thank you so much. We're glad that you like the book, but we really hope that that people will take it as a a beginning point for for the work we hope will be done in the world. We try to lift up stories of especially women who we think are daughters of Rizpah, women who have taken their grief and their loss and sometimes their anger and been willing to literally risk their lives, their reputations, even their family's health and safety uh, to to be those daughters of Rizpah, speaking truth to power, witnessing, testifying. So we we find it very inspiring as well and hope others will.
1: Yeah, I wanted to talk about that because the, the title, we haven't really gotten to the title. We've been talking about Rizpah and then the title of your book is The Daughters. And you have about, I think, eight chapters there at the end, each one where you look at either an individual or a group of women who you think are modeling some of the characteristics that we find in the story. I want to first just read something that's actually up in the first chapter of your book that kind of sets the stage of what you're doing there in the last part. When you're writing about this story in this text, you write, it is a story of genocide, revenge, execution, mourning, and madness. It is an ancient story yet full of concerns that jump out in contemporary news is there nothing new under the sun? That's for mine. That's yeah. what I always say. There is nothing I like new. That. I read it. I really like that. Like first time reading the book, I'm like, all right, I'm going to mention this part in the interview. So <laughs> I, I wonder if you could share maybe one of, like I said, you have these eight different stories. I wonder just to give us a taste of what you mean by seeing this, this story, these daughters living out this work in this trauma filled world today. I wonder if you could share one of those stories for us and then people can go check out the rest of them as well
0: well probably one of my favorite ones um are the praying women of liberia and talk about genocide and trauma i there are certainly many places in the world uh where where that's true but these women um they were amazing. I I love the story of Lema Gabawi and how she, uh, if you haven't seen the documentary, pray the devil back to hell. It is, it's chilling, but so inspiring. And that's really where I learned about her. So there was civil war in Liberia in, um, 1989 led by Charles Taylor and child soldiers. And there was a lot of rape, Terrible, terrible violence. But Lema Gaboway, she had to flee her village. Uh, She was pregnant at the time. She had a a three-year-old son, a two-year-old daughter. They had no food. Uh, She just was heartbroken that her children were asking her for food, and she had nothing to give them. But she really uh, gathered people for prayer and some Muslim women also wanted to pray. And there was a debate, can we pray with these, can we Christian women pray with these Muslim women? And they decided the bullet does not discriminate and uh, all their families were being affected. And so they formed Women in Peacebuilding Network. And so they strategically positioned themselves in public vigils, much like RISPA did. In places where uh, Charles Charles Taylor would have to pass by them, and I think they were like at a fish market or or near yeah. near his near where he he would pass by often, and really nothing happened. It was a very long time before anything happened. But what they did was eventually uh, they went to Ghana where negotiations were finally taking place and I think they were largely responsible for those those negotiations to even come about but once people got out of the out of the bush and into the comfortable hotel rooms and you know comfortable space of the where the negotiations were taking place nothing was happening And so Lama Gabowie um, said that um, that she was going to, strip naked if they didn't didn't start to come to some kind of an agreement. Now, in her culture, the shame would come on those who saw her, not on her. And so the, uh, the police said, uh, oh my God, the peace hall has been seized by General Lema and her troops. <laughs> and so the Ghanaian uh, police came you know, came to arrest her on charges of disrupting justice, and I think it—it it was that point that they just went nuts and said, "Disrupting justice! Those people in there are disrupting justice. They're the ones." And so, finally, there were some peace terms that came about. United Nations peacekeepers were brought in. Uh, the country was stabilized, and then, finally, in 2005, um, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf was elected president. And both she and uh, Alayma Gaboe received the Peace Prize in 2011. So I just love this story because of how Muslim and Christian women came together. Their persistence was unlike anything I've ever seen in our current time, uh, women coming together. And certainly they are daughters of Rizpah for that persistence and and vigilance and, and vigil that they kept.
2: I'd like to share a story that's not in the book, but you know, the stories we shared are ones that directly impacted us in some way or another in our, in our time of ministry, but there was something that happened before that given that this interview is taking place uh, in the first of March, and we just finished Black History Month, and in 2020, we had such major issues related to racism and institutional racism, and violence, uh, and so this uh, young, young kid from Chicago, teenager Emmett Till, went down to, uh, I think it was Mississippi, and um, uh, may have whistled at a at a white woman or something like that. He ended up getting uh, lynched and and just you know torn apart in so many brutal ways uh, as a part of the the whole Jim Crow supported by the terror of lynching, and so his body was sent up. Back to home to Chicago, and his mother insisted that it be open casket. Uh, she said, people need to see what happened. And I just thought, there's another daughter of Rispa. And um, I think we see these these examples uh, over and over again in in history, And that's become a part of the American story now, you know, just uh, a daughter of Rispa in our own country. So so there's there's many, many stories. We, we we ended up cutting it off, but there there's so many stories to share. We we love finding daughters of RISPA. In fact, I forget what the story was, but something happened this week. We said, Oh, there's a daughter of RISPA. You know? okay.
0: Yeah, we tried to um we tried to include stories from different cultures and we tried to hit the Middle East, Africa, continent. Um so, Argentina, South America. So we tried to make sure there were daughters of Rizpah recognized from around the world.
1: And I love that idea because it's it's not just that you're helping us to learn from this text and apply it, but you're also helping us to see the Bible as alive and lived out by people today. And I think that 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 is because you know, I think it is easy to look at this as an ancient story, uh, like the line that that I read from from chapter One. but it is a story that is still happening. And that these stories, you know the, the the example in Liberia is is very recent. Uh, actually, I, I I saw the documentary "Pray the Devil Back to Hell" on the campus of Eastern Mennonite right before Lema spoke, and so that was oh, really wow. exciting to to see her there on campus when she came back to tell that story. They showed the documentary first and had her share the story there. And but even you know the, the Emmett Till story, which is not that long ago. You know, it's not an ancient story. I was interviewing uh, Amos Brown. Pastor at Third Baptist Church in San Francisco, a few episodes back on the podcast, and he mentioned that he's the same age wow. as Emmett Till, and Amos just turned 80. And so, you know, without this lynching, you know, Emmett might, could still be around today. Yeah,
2: Sharon and I were uh, in Kansas City. We were at a church in Kansas City that has um, welcomed in a number of refugees, including from Liberia. And so we started, we were doing a program, and we were kind of telling the RISPA story. And as we st- st- got into telling the story about the women in Liberia, this woman stood up and she just started telling the whole story herself. And we found out she was one of those women demonstrating with Lema Gaboey. And, and it here she is this hero <laughs> associated with the Nobel Peace Prize in a Baptist church in Kansas City and nobody knows that they've got this hero in their midst. And, uh, you know, so, of course, we went nuts. We just, that that that, that became the highlight of our whole time in Kansas City that was for us to meet this woman, you know, just see what happened as the church, you know, realized that, because sometimes, you know, we see ourselves as helping folks and we don't know their story. We, we just see, oh, you know, we're helping out these poor refugees. Some of them have such incredible stories to tell. And uh, this was the daughter of Rispa.
0: I think an, another story that I find very sad is um, Comadres in El Salvador, and especially Maria um, Maria Tuzla, she was, you know, she basically never got to go back home. She's granted mm-hmm. asylum in the US in 1994. and a woman who's deeply traumatized by imprisonment, rape, violence. Um, just, but her, her story really pulls at me, uh, because she had her daughter with her in jail. (laughs) And this was a woman who put forth so much effort and yet, you know, she hasn't been able to go back home. So the stories don't always end well, (laughs) but, uh, who are we to say or to judge what is successful or not? She, I'm sure other people have stood on her shoulders and and brought about change in ways that she couldn't. And sometimes that's just the situation we find ourselves in. How do we be faithful? How do we take the risks to speak truth where it needs to be spoken and to express our grief and our loss in a, in a public way, sometimes through civil disobedience, as RISPA did? But we may not have a good, a good end of the story. But we're still required to be faithful and, and others will come after us and, and we'll, we'll give testimony.
1: That's a, that's a good word that I mean, this isn't a, this isn't a land of fairy tales that you're, you're dealing with. It doesn't, it is a trauma-filled world and things don't always end well, but I appreciate the fact that you're, you're lifting up these stories of the people that otherwise we don't, you know we like to tell the stories of the king david figures today right our our pro king david glasses are still in the way we tell the stories of the people in power and the people with wealth and you're pointing us to the people on the margins who are doing god's work and and that's what you all have been doing not just in this book but throughout your your many decades of work with international ministries and and elsewhere and so Sharon and Dan, thank you so much for just all that you have done. I, I have learned from you all, and I, um, like I said, I have probably I, I have spent more time. I know I have spent more time just the last couple of years thinking about this particular story than I'd had ever had uh, all of my years before <laughs> combined. Uh, but I've also spent more time thinking about this text than many other parts of the Bible. And it's because that you really sparked, my imagination that day, and I, I want to thank you for that, and thank you for writing this book to share these ideas with with many more. I really appreciate the fact that you're here on the program with us again to talk about it.
0: Thank you. We did put a sermon at the back, our sermon outline, so you, maybe you can preach it with someone.
1: All right, sounds good. Yeah, let's uh, <laughs> let put that word out to all the pastors. You know? That's right. That's I'll, uh, right. All of you in the next year to preach. Got an extra text. sermon for you. <laughs> that's right. <laughs>
2: It's been a joy being with you, and thank you. Thanks thank you so for, for all you do to just uh, lift up the, the work of God's people in so many
1: special ways. So bless you, Brian. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Baptist Without an Adjective. As a reminder, you can get The Butchery's new book, Daughters of Rizpah, Nonviolence and the Transformation of Trauma, wherever you buy your books. As always, you'll find us at wardenway.org, and don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode, The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at CBF.net. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook and head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review. It really does help more people to find the show. You can find easy to share links at podcast.wordandway.org. If you'd like to give to support this program, we greatly appreciate it, and all you have to do at wordandway.org is hit the donate button. And whatever you give there will help support the production of this podcast as well as our website and monthly magazine. And speaking of that magazine, if you're not a subscriber, you really are missing out on more news and information you're going to want to read. And I've got a special offer for you. Get your first year for half off. Just go to tinyurl.com slash If you have any feedback about this program, you can send that to me at bkaler at wordandway.org. Thanks for listening.